Good morning to those of you who are gathered online and to those of you that are scattered across the sanctuary. We're so glad that you're here with us. And wherever you're at, we are united together as one body. And uh, this year, we're looking at the one story that unites all of Scripture. You know, the Bible is made up of 66 individual books. It was written over about 1,500 years uh, by over 35 different authors in three distinct languages, and yet there is continuity to the Bible. There's a, a unifying thread that unites the entire tapestry of Scripture. And as a result, we can understand the Bible as an unfolding story. And in the month of August, we have been looking at the hinge or the fulcrum of this grand story. It's the event on which the entire narrative of redemptive history depends. And that event is the coming of Jesus. Now, by way of a refresher, our story begins because of the divine initiative of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Human beings are created by Him in order to have fellowship with Him, their Creator, and also because we're created in His image to go and through the way that we will care for and have stewardship of the world to, to reflect His glory on this planet. But three chapters into the story, we see that mankind rebels against God. And this leads to separation from God. And the consequences of this are, are deadly, quite literally. Uh, death enters the world as a result of this decision. And, and, and the consequences, we, we could say, is the entire shalom, the perfection, the, the wholeness of the created order becomes corrupted and begins to unravel. And this is mankind's biggest problem, our separation from God and the death that ensues. But we see also the development of, of several other problems or subplots, we could call them. We see man is separated from his fellow man. As we look at the news and we look back across the centuries, we see fighting, we see wars, we see conflict, we see oppression. Man is also separated from nature and must contend with thorns and thistles and droughts and plagues and even pandemics. And mankind is also separated from himself. And we're left to, to grapple with things like shame and guilt. And while we still see evidence of the inherent goodness of God's creation, we also know that we live in a world uh, that is marred. We live in a world where we have to contend with death and decay and depravity. And as we read on from Genesis 3, we're left wondering if the problems created by mankind's rebellion from God can really be solved. Now, as we prepare to turn our attention to the Gospel of John, uh, we're going to see the arc of human history pivot. And, and as we begin, I want to ask you a question. What would you say if I told you that I had a roommate in college who, who looked like an ordinary human being, but he was really uh, from the alien planet Krypton? And, and, and everyone called him Clark, but his real name was Cal Ale. And, and it just so happens that Cal Ale, uh, when he was living on the, on the alien planet Krypton, 
that his parents found out about the, the impending destruction of their planet, and his dad constructed a spacecraft, and, and his parents managed to place him inside the spacecraft, and they managed to, to launch it to Earth right before the planet destroyed, and it just so happens, no kidding, that, that the spacecraft landed in rural Kansas, where it was found by uh, Jonathan and Martha Kent, and they adopted Cal Ale, and they gave him the name Clark. Clark Kent. And, and as Clark grew, he discovered that he had superpowers, like incredible strength, like he could take steel and he could just bend it with his bare hands. And he was fast, like faster than a speeding bullet. And this guy had hops. Uh, I mean, he, he, could, he, could, he could jump over tall buildings. And, and because it just so happens that I was Clark's roommate in college, I saw all of these powers firsthand. Now, how many of you believe, would believe I'm telling the truth? No hands. It, it, it's pretty unbelievable, right? And the reason I, I share this is because uh, when we think about um, what it's like to speak with someone and say, hey, I've got some good news for you. I, I want you to know that 2,000 years ago, the, the eternally begotten Son of God, uh, the, the, the second person of the Godhead came to earth. He broke through time and space and entered into our world in a manger in the city of Bethlehem. And he, he was fully God and fully man. And his parents gave him the name Jesus. And while Jesus was here on this earth, he lived a perfect life. But he was crucified. And, and he did this willingly. He willingly went to the cross in order to bear the penalty for our sins so that God could be both just and the justifier in reconciling us to him and removing this separation. And after Jesus was crucified and died and was buried, on the third day, he rose again. And he was seen by over 500 people. And then he ascended into heaven and one day he's coming back. I think we need to realize that when we share this with people, that their response can be very similar to the one uh, that some might have if I said that, you know, my college roommate uh, has superhuman powers and he's originally from the planet Krypton. It's, it's, it, it, it can cause people to become skeptical because these claims about Jesus are violating their plausibility structures. But think with me for a moment, what, what would it take to persuade you, to convince you that my roommate really was from Krypton? It would take facts, data, and evidence, right? And if you were to go with me to my 20-year college reunion, and like a thousand people were there, and they were all talking about what it was like to go to school with Clark, and, and you heard multiple people recount the stories of the time that, that, that Clark, he jumped over the 100-foot clock tower, or the time the little girl was falling from the top of the football stadium and, and Clark jumped up in the air and grabbed her and brought her safely back down to the ground. Well, that, that might cause you to rethink your position if you heard all these people talking about it and sharing their stories. And in the same way, the gospel writers realize that the claim that they're making about Jesus is pretty incredible. They anticipate skepticism, so they provide facts, data, and evidence to help authenticate the veracity of their claims. 
Now, oftentimes when we speak with people about Jesus, you can get the sense that they believe that we as Christians, that we just have this blind faith. That there's this dichotomy between faith and reason and that the two never go together and they say, oh, I could, I could never believe like that. But what the gospel writers are calling for is not a blind faith at all. It's an evidence-based faith. And we can think of the Gospel of John as a, as a biography. However, this isn't an exhaustive biography. There's no account of Jesus' birth or childhood. And this makes sense. I mean, 2,000 years ago, writing was a, was a labor-intensive process, right? There was, there was no word processor. There was no swinging by staples on the way home to pick up some quills and some parchment. And as a, as a result, John had to be selective. In fact, this is what he tells us at the very end of his, of his gospel. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may what? Help me out. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, there's that word again, you may have life in his name. In other words, John says, here's the evidence that I've selected in order to provide you with a basis to have trust, to have confidence, to have faith. John said, I'm, I'm giving you a sample of what I experienced as it relates to the words and works of Jesus. And I'm doing this so that you can have a rational basis for believing. Now, if we were to go and we were to outline the Gospel of John, we'd see that the book seems to naturally divide into two sections. The latter half of the book focuses on the last week of Jesus' life here, uh, his earthly ministry. And the first half of the book is often called the Book of Signs. Uh, because it revolves around these seven signs that Jesus performed. And it would be accurate to say that these signs are miracles, but they're more than mere displays of power. They are symbol-laden events that, that are rich in meaning for those with eyes to see because of the way that, that they reveal God to us in the person of Jesus and today we're going to look at the climactic and final sign. Maddie read the beginning of this account for us earlier. By, by way of a refresher, Jesus receives news that Lazarus is ill, but he waits two more days. And by the time Jesus does arrive in Bethany, we learn that Lazarus has been dead for four days. So we can surmise that Lazarus died that very day that Mary and Martha sent the messengers to Jesus. But Jesus, in verse 4, says... This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In other words, th th this is an occasion for Jesus to be revealed for who He is. This is an opportunity for the self-disclosure of God. And this is supported as we read on and we come to verse 14 where Jesus tells His disciples, He says, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I was glad that I was not there so that you may what? Believe. There it is again. So Jesus, Jesus isn't just looking to perform a miracle. He isn't looking to generate some buzz and get the hype train going. He, he, you know, he could have gone and he could have levitated everywhere he went. 
you know, and attracted a crowd and just got jaws to drop. But he doesn't do that because he's not interested in attracting a crowd. What he's interested in doing is building his disciples' confidence and strengthening their faith in him. So they set off for Bethany, and upon his arrival, Jesus is met by Martha, and she laments, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's expressing her faith that if Jesus was present while her brother lay ill, that Jesus could have healed him. He could have done something about that. And then she continues in verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, is Martha suggesting that they head down to the gravesite and, 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 and that Jesus roll away the tomb and bring Lazarus back from the dead? I, I don't think so, because it's Martha who objects later when Jesus gives the order for the gravestone to roll away. She says, whoa, 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 whoa. time out. Let's not do that. There's going to be a really bad odor. Rather, rather, I think what we see here is, is Martha vocalizing that in spite of her grief, that she still has some sense of confidence in Jesus. And we continue now in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. This response right here is what uh, commentator D.A. Carson calls a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. And, and, and the best way I can relate this is that he, I think this would be like Bruce Wayne saying, I know Batman. Well, that's true, right? I mean, but there's so much more to it, isn't there? And I think that's what's going on here. It's a true statement. And Martha just, she just takes it at the surface level and thinks that Jesus is attempting to provide her comfort by drawing her attention to the resurrection that will happen at a future point in time. She says, I, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But is Jesus promising something more? He goes on in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. So in addition to these seven signs that we see in John's gospel, another literary feature are these seven I am statements of Jesus. And this is one of them. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And what we see Jesus doing here is he's, he's diverting Martha's focus away from this abstract belief in, in what happens on the last day to a very personalized belief in him. And the question you might be asking yourself is, what, what does it mean when Jesus refers to himself as the resurrection and the life? Are, are these two terms synonymous? Does Jesus kind of do this for rhetorical effect? Is this like me saying, well, it's a fact and it's true? Or are, are these two terms complementary? I, I think it's this latter option because of what Jesus says next. He, he seems to clarify what he means by saying that he's the resurrection and the life. He says, whoever believes in me, there's that word again, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Did you catch that? How's that for helpful? In the latter half of verse 25, Jesus acknowledged that whoever believes in him is going to die. But then, one verse later, verse 26, hold on. He says, everyone who believes in him shall never die. Thank you, Jesus. Which one is it, right? 
This is a beautiful paradox. Jesus is the master teacher, and he, he gives his disciples something to contemplate, something to mull over, something to ponder. And, and the great truth being communicated here is, is unpacked. His claim that he is the resurrection, I think this goes with the, the last half of verse 25, and Jesus' claim that he is the life is that second clause, the beginning of verse 26. So in this way, Jesus' claim that he is the resurrection is what's amplified by his saying, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In other words, Jesus is saying, whoever places their trust in me, even though he or she might experience a physical death, that person will nevertheless come to life again. He's saying that for the believer, that death is going to be a gateway to a life to come. That death isn't this just game over, everything gets unplugged, powered down. But at the same time, Jesus wants his listeners to realize that this life that he imparts is not just this future promise, but it's also a present gift. I am the life means that everyone who lives, everyone that has his life and believes in me, shall never die. Now, Jesus isn't saying you're not going to experience death. I mean, millions of believers over the past 2,000 years have experienced physical death. What Jesus is saying here is the moment that we place our trust in him, we will begin to experience the everlasting life that he offers. At its core, everlasting life is fellowship with God. And this is a life that can be enjoyed on this side of death. And so in some sense, the one who believes in Jesus will never die because the life that Jesus gives can never end. And what Jesus is claiming here, he's not just saying that he has the power to revive someone from the dead. It's so much stronger than that. He's saying that resurrection and life are so closely tied to him that they're embodied in him, and and that one can't have resurrection and life without being in relationship with him. Jesus is saying that he can bring about an end to our separation from God. He's saying that the the big problem we have, our sin problem, and the the death that it causes, that he can do away with that. He, he, He can handle our greatest enemy of all, that curse of death. Now, can we just admit that these are some pretty tall claims on Jesus' part? That his listeners were probably pretty skeptical? So let's keep reading. We're going to go to John 11. I'll be reading now in verse 28 if you want to follow along. When she, that's Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? 
They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. There's so much going on in John's gospel. Uh, There's intricacy, there's layers, there's irony, there's foreshadowing. I mean, this really is just just a masterpiece in terms of literature. And we could spend several weeks just on this passage, but we're not going to do that. I just want to take a moment and I want to speak first to those of you who are believers. And and then I want to take a moment and, and just appeal to those of you who are here who might describe yourselves as those who are exploring Christianity, those who you are investigating. And for the believer, I'd say, let's just revisit this scene again. A beloved brother, a, a member of the community has just been buried. His family and friends are grieving. They're hurting. Maybe, maybe you can recall what this would be like just from your own experience. And what does Jesus do? Does he kick open the doors and say, hey, buck up? What, what, what are you guys doing crying? I got this. I'm going to dry all your tears. Just step aside. No, he doesn't do that. He, he sees Mary weeping. And he sees her companions that are there with her weeping. And, and he's deeply moved. He enters into their pain. He feels their sorrow. He gets swept up into it. And it moves him to tears. And and for the believer, I want to remind you that this is what our king is like. He he is strength without harshness. He's power with sensitivity. He's mighty, and and yet he is tender. What, What we have in Jesus is so incredible. 
He's Savior and Lord, but he's also friend. And, and I don't know what you might be going through. I, I don't know what hurt you might be carrying, what pain you might be coping with. But I can assure you that Jesus isn't disinterested. He, he isn't just up in heaven, pacing in circles, counting down the days until he can return and establish his kingdom. Jesus is the great high priest who is able to sympathize with us. He is a God who cares. He is a God who entered into our world and took on human nature and personally experienced all the disappointments that come from life in a broken and fallen world. He has experienced rejection and betrayal and injustice. And when we hurt, when we grieve, when we lament, he extends a hand and he says, I care. This breaks my heart too. And those of you who might be hurting, just know that Jesus, he isn't ambivalent to your present circumstances. He is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. And what we see from this passage is that his timing is always best. He, he hears the news that Lazarus has passed and he remains where he's at two more days. And maybe you feel like Jesus has really delayed himself in intervening in your situation. And if that's the case, you can just know that it's for some wise reason. You can trust him. Because here's what we know. He loves you the same way that he loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And you can trust him. Now to the person here who's exploring Christianity, I want to invite you to just to think with me for a moment. The gospel writer has provided us with facts, data, and evidence so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And at the end of the day, we have to come to one of two conclusions. Either the Apostle John is telling the truth, and this really happened, or it didn't. And, and if this is fact, if this is truth, then belief in Jesus is the rational choice. And if it's fiction, then we should just move on. I mean, there is no middle ground here. I mean, logically, what it doesn't do, it, 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 it doesn't make sense to say, oh, look at what a great teacher Jesus was, and, and put him up on the shelf alongside the other prophets and sages who, who founded religions and philosophical schools. Because Jesus won't allow for this. He says that he's superior. He says that he has no equal. He says that he has no peer. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is an exclusive claim. And if it's true, then he should be worshipped. But if it isn't true, why even bother putting him on the shelf? I mean, he would be inferior. Because it would mean he, either he's a pathological liar or he's delusional. But let's just, let's just think for a moment about some of the reasons people will sometimes give to say, hey, this, this is fiction. They might say, well, well, of course, Jesus of Nazareth, that, that was a real person. He was a historical figure. But the, the, these events in the Gospels that recount all these supernatural works, these are legendary embellishments written after his death. And yeah, there, there was a Jesus of history, but as the legend kind of grew and grew, 
He was deified, and that's when he became the Christ of Christianity. And to the person who would say that, I'd say, well, let's just let's look at the facts. Let's look at the data. Scholars are in agreement that most of the New Testament was written within three decades of the life of Jesus. And these documents, they reveal that, that Jesus was clearly regarded and worshipped as God. So there really isn't much evidence to su- substantiate this claim that Jesus' deity was something that was crystallized in the 3rd or 4th century. Immediately after his ascension, his followers worshipped him as God. Now, I, I know that Jesus isn't the only person to claim to be God. I mean, just think, for example, I mean, Jim Jones did that a couple decades ago and even got some people to follow him into the jungle. But what happened after he died? Nothing. Nothing. And it's the same way with everyone else who claimed to be God, except with Jesus. You might say, well, you know, the people back then, uh, they, they were just more superstitious. If you know, David Blaine, the great illusionist, were to, were to get in a time machine and go back 2,000 years. Maybe he could get everybody to believe he was God, too. And I would say, just, just consider for a moment who Jesus' audience was. They were Jewish. And what did the Jews believe about God? They believed in an infinitely transcendent God. God's holiness, his otherness, was so central to their theology that it was even forbidden to pronounce his name. That's how other God was. When the, that, that word Yahweh, his, his name, was written in their scriptures and they were reading and they came across it in the scrolls, they wouldn't even pronounce it. They would substitute in place the word Adonai, which means Lord. So the people who would have had the hardest time coming to grips with the fact that Jesus was fully God would have been the Jews. His life would have been under incredible scrutiny from the moment he, he, he made this claim that he was God. And yet all of Jesus' first followers were Jewish. And it isn't fair to say, well, th- this is such an old book. This is such an ancient book. It, it can't be reliable. We have to be careful that we don't engage in what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Just, just because the ancients, they didn't have iPhones and microwaves, doesn't mean that they weren't smart people. The Jews would have been every bit as skeptical as anyone today, and yet they believed. Well, hey, maybe, maybe the disciples made this stuff up, Right? I'd say this is the most difficult argument to make. First of all, the Gospels are full of too many specifics. They give us names and places and details. I mean, even in just one chapter we read, we're told Lazarus' name, the city he lives in, the name of his sisters. The the Gospel writers, they open themselves up to the fact checkers. And this is the last thing that you would want to do if you were going to construct a false narrative. And if the disciples did decide to make this up, what was in it for them? There was no fame or fortune. There's no financial incentive here. Why why would they make this up? Normally, if you're going to make something up, you do it for some kind of advantage, right? Or to avoid some sort of consequence. What did they gain by propagating this? Well, um, they were persecuted. They were beaten. They were run out of town. They were martyred. Um... You got to go see the lions in the Colosseum. 
The, the best explanation is that they were convinced that Jesus really was God. That his, his life, his words, and his work were, were so extraordinary that he had to have been telling the truth. And so my, my, my question for you is, what are you going to do with the evidence? What are you going to do with Jesus' claims? Uh, I see it as uh, maybe just a couple options. One, we can just kind of brush them aside. We can suppress this. We can just kind of hit the override button and say, la, 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 you know, um, and, and just, just allow our sense of reason to be overridden by our passions so that we can continue to be Lord of our life. That's an option. An- another option is to say, eh, it's just, it, it's got to be fiction. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to try and convince yourself that it's fiction, then I want to ask you, just, just be intellectually honest with yourself. And what that means is, is that you have to still come up with a, a credible explanation for the rise and the spread of Christianity. And it has to involve facts, data, and evidence. And it just can't be based on your preconceived notions of what might or might not have happened. But there's a third option. And the third option is that you can just allow yourself to recognize that the most reasonable explanation for what's written here is that it really happened. And with Martha, you can say, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you can have life in his name. And you might say, well, gosh, I, I, you know, I don't know if I could do that. I, I, I still have so many questions. And I would say believing doesn't mean that you don't have questions. In fact, you're still allowed to have questions. What you're saying is, Jesus, I I recognize that you're asking me to make a decision about where it stands as it relates to you, who you are, and your identity. And at the end of the day, I don't have everything figured out. I don't know all there is. I wish I knew a lot more. But but I'm just going to believe that you're who you said you are. I don't know everything, but I'm going to go with that, that you're the Son of God. And if you've never believed that before, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for what you have revealed today about your son through your word that you've inspired by your spirit. And I thank you that because of the coming of Jesus that we can stand here as a people and we can sing, it is well with my soul. That in spite of all the problems created by our rebellion, our treason against you, our sin, that we can know that there's hope And Jesus, I thank you that you came and you offered us your very life. And God, your words today, I know that they've prompted all of us in different ways. 
for some, this has been comfort for others, encouragement for others. It's, it's just been the challenge to reorient our lives on, on where life is to be truly found. But I know for some here, for some listening, it's prompted the necessity to believe. And if that's you, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. You can just you can say a prayer like this in the quietness of your own heart. Say, Jesus, I recognize that, that I have a problem. Uh, I realize that my attitudes and my actions are contrary to my Creator, to God. And I know that because of my sin problem that I also have a a rendezvous with death. But Jesus, I thank you so much for coming to this earth and living the perfect life I could never live and bearing the punishment I deserve to bear. And I acknowledge you to be my substitute and I want to place my faith in you. I want to believe. I believe. And I acknowledge you to be my Savior and Lord. Just like Martha, I confess that you're the Christ, the Son of God. And I want to live for you all of my days. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's continue to worship.